1: What makes a great Southern story? Well, some writers, like Faulkner, may tell you that there should be a mule involved. There should be conflict, of course, and often bloodshed, and maybe a little sex and moonshine sprinkled in for extra flavor. Dear readers and listeners, the story you are about to hear has all the above and more, including a ride in the electric chair and a famous U.S. senator. And this story earns my vote for the most wicked story in Southern history. This is the tale of how a mule kick killed eight people. And joining us here today to tell it is one of the greatest South Carolina writers and storytellers of our generation, Mr. Tom Poland.
2: was the lovely voice of journalist author and storyteller michael dewitt i'm seton tucker and this story we're about to hear is so racy and wicked that we had to give our co-host matt harris the day off because we knew he would not be able to behave himself uh, michael would you like to thank our sponsors and introduce our special guest
1: Our sponsors are Dr. Kenny Kinsey and Associates, and we'll uh, mention them, we talk about them uh, at the end of the episode as well. Palmetto Pride Moonshine over in the upstate in Anderson, and Rotten Little Bastard Distillery right here in Beaufort. And now on to our special guest. Tom Poland is the author of 14 books and more than 2,000 magazine articles and columns, Tom writes about the South, its people, culture, land, natural wealth, beautiful ruins, and abandoned places. He travels back roads looking for forgotten places, captivating people, and vestiges of bygone times. Tom, thank you for joining us and sharing the story of how a mule kick killed eight people. Perhaps you can start by telling us when and where this story takes place. Thank
3: you for having me. The story takes place in Edgefield County, and it was a story of the early 1940s, and uh, I have lived in Columbia, South Carolina, Irmo, more properly, for 50 years now, and I have gone up and down that road a thousand times and passed that store and never knew its history. Then one day, I was coming back from a weekend of Georgia football, where we beat LSU, I'm happy to say, and I started this habit. Of photographing old gas pump gauges to see what the price of gas was and then I'd come home and look on a website that tracks history of gas prices and kind of figure out when the store closed. Huh,
2: that's a, well, that's, a that's a cool hobby.
3: It is. Robert Clark, the co-author of mine with several books uh, on South Carolina, he and I started doing that together and I was doing it alone that day Well, I got out to take a photograph of the gas pump and was distracted by an old American pickers type signs, an RC Cola sign, and camel cigarettes. And I was taking a picture of those when I heard the gravel crunch behind me and a voice said, You think them signs this was sales? they ain't. I might file the nail heads off and take them down. And I turned around. It was a tall guy with a hat on that looked like the outlaw Josie Wells. <laughs> then he pointed at the store with his finger and said, my granddad got killed in there for $500. I said, Robin shot? No, a woman had him killed for $500. And Then the most incredible story unfolded, it, one that goes back to 1941. The store at the intersection of Highway 378 and 430 leads to, leads to Edgeville, uh, that store holds some dark, deep secrets. That's kind of how I got onto the story. That's, that's what got me onto it right there.
2: And you had never heard of this story before. This was the first.
3: I had never heard a word about that story at all. No, and you know, back in '41, a lot of roads were unpaved. Some places they didn't even have electrification yet. It was it was it was tough times, and people could be rough. And uh, you know, if you lost a calf, or in this case, really a heifer, it was a serious thing. And when this farmer that owned the store. When his mule jumped into another man's pasture over a fence, it kicked a heifer in the leg and broke it. And that man had to put his cow down. And he wanted $20 for it. That's kind of what happened. He goes to the store a couple days later, get his $20, and he decides he wants 40
2: Double the price.
3: There was a lot of tension between these families, the Lows and Timmermans. Davis Timmerman owned the store, Wallace Low owned the cow or calf. Argument broke out, and he grabbed a uh, Low grabbed an axe handle, wailed it up against Timmerman's head, and busted his lip. And Timmerman reached in a drawer and pulled out like a Saturday Night Special and shot him in the chest twice. He locked his door, and he drove the 12 miles down 4:30 in the Edgefield turned himself into the sheriff and the coroner and said, I killed a man, but with self-defense, he gave him the keys and said, go see for yourself. They drove to the store, unlocked it. and There was the guy dead, the axe handle in his hand. He came back and said, we believe you, but we still got to arrest you. And that was the setting uh, for the trial that was so uh, quick. I think it took two hours. He was acquitted on grounds of self-defense.
2: Sounds like that was a pretty clear-cut self-defense.
3: Yes, it was. But that did not sit well with Sue Logue. She had a nephew that worked as a part-time police officer at Spartanburg.
1: Now, who so who is like Sue now? Is Sue the, the, the widow?
3: Sue um, Logue is the widow of the man with the axe handle that got killed.
1: Okay, gotcha.
3: Wallace Logue. And let me add a, a, an important thing right here. The families that live in Edgeville are still there, the Logs and Terminals. And they go to the same church. And they read my story, and they invited me down for homecoming at their church, Little Stevens Creek Baptist Church in August. And I go down there every August now to homecoming with them, and they get along just fine. And they said, yep, you got the story right. That's pretty much how it went. It's, It's quite a tale.
2: That's crazy that they go to the same church, and they're all on good terms now. Yeah,
3: I don't know if they went to the same church then, but they certainly do now.
2: <laughs> I looked up the inflation calculator just to so context for people. It was, I guess, twenty dollars back in nineteen forty would be about four hundred and forty dollars. So double that would be, you know, closer to a thousand. Yeah,
3: that's right. That's right. So uh, it was a serious thing, and there was this background feud that had been going on. Uh, Sue Logue was a teacher. This was in the days when you didn't have to have a degree or certification; you just could be a teacher, and the kids. Really enjoyed her. I think she did a good job from all that I read, but for some reason, um, there was a the situation that arose when she raised her hand as if to slap a child, which she did not. And that child went home and said, "Miss Logan's going to slap me," and that's that's what started everything, best I can determine. And so they decided that she didn't need to teach, and she knew they were trying to get her job, and so she was desperate to keep that job, including fact that she got pregnant and she went to the doctor and said they won't renew my contract if i'm pregnant i want to have an abortion
2: oh my goodness
3: and he said this is illegal and unethical i'm not going to do it so she tried to do it herself and she got very ill and the doctor had to come mend her into her you know so she lost a baby then she lost her husband to davis Timmerman in her mind, who had a lot of influence over the Board of Education. And she did, in fact, lose her job down the road. And as the story goes, at the time, the superintendent of the school system was a guy named Strom Thurman. And she <laughs> and Strom got caught red-handed in a compromising situation in the old Thompson Schoolhouse down there off of 430. A couple of July 4 ago, I went down there and took a photograph of it it's been abandoned. Buzzards roost on the uh, roof. There was a fragrant uh, ramosa tree out front, but it couldn't overcome the stench of those buzzards. And I looked in this, the school and walked around it a little bit. I was trying to think well, where did this tryst happen? What room was it in? You know, and uh, it was a quite a quite a, a spooky place. I got caught up in the story pretty good, and I still go to Edgeville a lot. And every time I pass that store. I just get a feeling and you just get a strange feeling knowing that two men died in there and that those two men led to six more deaths.
2: That is crazy. And I was listening to the True Crimes Carolina podcast and they got to go into why uh, she became a teacher. And in their podcast, they say that she was having an affair with her brother-in-law and possibly the mother-in-law wanted to uh, get her out of the house as much as possible because uh, Wallace's brother was a farmer, and they were spending a, quite a lot of time. So, becoming a teacher possibly was a way to get her away from the, uh, Wallace's brother.
1: Okay,
3: that's that's some details I, I didn't come by. Uh, I
1: didn't know about that. Well, we're going to come back to uh, Sue Loeb in a little bit, and we do want to mention. I'll mention at the end the sources where we, in addition to Tom's great article, we found this awesome podcast. Kind of adds a little extra detail. So, Tom. We've got a dead man in the in the store and we were talking about the trial, a very quick trial, and uh, remind us again how the trial turned out and then tell us how the murders happened from there and give us a little body count as we go along so we can keep up with how this thing just all uh, happens in, in chronological order and how the bodies just start piling up. Sure.
3: When Logue goes to pay Timmerman to get his money from Terman for the, uh, that he had to put down because the mule kicked it. You know, like I said, he wanted $40 and a fight broke out and, um, Davis shot him to death, two shots to the chest, turned himself in. And there was a trial in which he was acquitted clearly for self defense. Well, this is where Sue Logue called her part-time police officer nephew into the, uh, situation and says, I've got $500 you can find somebody who will kill that guy who killed my husband. And so her nephew finds a no-count down on his luck plasterer named Clarence Bagwell. He asks him if he'll kill this guy for $500. And Bagwell says, hell, for $500, I'll kill everybody in Spartanburg County.
2: And the nephew was a police officer, so maybe he had some uh, connections with people who might be willing to commit such a crime.
3: Shady characters. Right. And this was a part-time police officer. He wasn't full-time. The nephew and Bagwell go down to Edgeville and case the store. They go down on a rainy day. police officer is the getaway driver. He's got a black raincoat that he hides under as, as um, the hitman, Bagwell, goes into the store. And he asks uh, Timmerman Davis, for a pack of cigarettes, some say it was a pack of gum. And when he turns around to get whatever the item was, Bagwell says, hey, look what I've got for you. And he turns around, and he puts five bullets in it. And he hits the floor and crawls toward the back of the store where there's a door on the side. Went out on it and bled out. And just moments before he had been across the street where the house still stands on the steps with his wife and children. And his last words to them were, We're all together. It wasn't that long afterwards, his wife heard the gunshot. She says the most terrible noise she ever heard. They saw a car speed off. Nobody knew. Nobody knew who did this. About a year goes by. The hitman, Bagwell, gets drunk one night and brags to a woman that he killed a man for $500. He wanted to impress her. And he did. He impressed her so much, she went straight to the police and Mm. told them what he had said. They confronted him. Someone said, you know, that guy was spotted down in Edgeville uh, right before those murders. He confessed everything. He said, Sue Logue paid me 500 dollars Here's who's involved. And now, this is when the state patrol head tells the new sheriff, Watt Allen, who is Sue's cousin, second cousin, those people are crazy. Don't try to arrest them by yourself. We'll give you all the support you need. Nonetheless, on a Sunday morning, they go to arrest her, and there's some Kit chat out in the front yard. They move into the house for the serious business of getting ready to uh, apprehend these people. And that's when um, George Logue, his brother in law, goes to change into another shirt. He returns and shoots the sheriff, who was unarmed, between the eyes, dropping him to the floor dead instantly. Doc Clark, the deputy, and uh, uh, one of the men standing by shoot each other in the gut. Each one of them dies two days apart from their wounds so that's three people killed two at the store that's five people dead now our body count stands at five it gets to be a tremendous uproar the sheriff was very popular people were very upset about that a crowd gathers at her house like a lynch mob they won't come out officers are scared to go in here comes strom thurman who is now the judge in the county, the top law enforcement officer, and he says, I know that woman. I can get her to come out.
2: He really knew that woman. He could get
3: her to come out <laughs> of her clothes, too. He he went into the house with his hands, uh palms up, showing he wasn't armed in suits. As the story goes, was in the bed crying. He held her hand and told her that if they didn't surrender, there was a lynch mob out there and they were gonna hang them. So they gave themselves up and they were all arrested situation was so volatile, they could not have the trial in Edgefield County. It was moved to Lexington County, right here near Columbia. So that was the trial. The trial took place. Sue was found guilty of murder for hire. She was sentenced, along with her brother-in-law, George, and the hitman, Clarence Bagwell, to death by electrocution.
2: Okay, before we uh, move forward, I think we need to talk about Sue's reputation.
1: So Tom's great article served as the basis for this whole story, How a Mule kick Killed Eight People. And then we found this this lovely uh, podcast. And I'm not a, an avid podcast person, but I'm a big fan of, of this one. Carolina Crimes Podcast Episode 3 goes back to, uh, I think, uh, t- 2021. So they go into more detail about Sue Lowe. And apparently she had an early reputation for being curious and maybe promiscuous. Uh, This article, and Tom said he didn't, uh, you know, dive deep into his research, but this podcast says that she not only slept with her husband, Wallace, but also with brother George. She had the affair with Strom Thurmond while he was a teacher and superintendent. Then he comes into play when he's a judge and brings her out of the house, out of the the standoff with police, and talks her into police custody. And I think Strom is going to reappear here in a minute. But she had a reputation. And Seton, I may let you try to to handle that, but it was mentioned in two newspapers.
2: Uh, Yeah. I mean, she left her house pretty early. uh, I think one of her uh, family members, I don't remember if it was her mother or father, had passed away. And she seemed very precarious at an early age and her family were just tried to possibly marry her off. So they find the Loth family and Wallace and think he would be a good fit. And Wallace was uh he had a timbering business where he was away from the house quite a good bit and his brother George ran the farm. So she maybe started some sort of relationship with George. So she was you know, she's involved with two brothers. And the mother-in-law possibly wanted her out of the house to, you know, not be around George, her brother-in-law, as much. So she becomes a teacher, and then she strikes up this affair with her superintendent. What was interesting was there were some articles written about her her lady parts, (laughs) and they made international news. I mean, it was very strange. I was like, oh, my gosh, who wants to make international – I mean – international news especially for that it it seemed very risque and she was internationally known for her lady parts I don't know it was it was odd
1: well I'm not an expert in um in uh in lady parts um you know maybe back in my younger days I might have been but I, I know a little bit about journalism. um and The quote, it was first written up in the Edgefield Register, which is a small uh, newspaper, just like the Hampton County Guardian. And the way newspapers work is a lot of times these bigger papers or these overseas papers will pick up an article from a small paper or maybe it gets put on the wire. like Uh, Associated. Okay. I won't quote word for word, but it mentions her muscular dexterity and her sexual prowess. And it was picked up by the London Examiner, which probably picked up the article from the Edgefield Register. So even before this woman became famous for being the first woman electrocuted, By the state of South Carolina, she had a world-famous sexual reputation. (laughs) Can Uh, you imagine
2: what it would be like for her to walk into church on a Sunday morning after that article came out? (laughs) 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 That might have been a little bit uncomfortable. And, I mean, Edgefield is not a, a big community. I mean, I would think that that might have caused quite a scandal.
1: Yeah, I think uh I think you um the church is probably gonna shake and tremble a little bit when you walk in after that article. Edgeville
3: has quite a history of violence,
1: murders and so forth down there, you know.
2: I did not know. I didn't know that.
3: Yes. You need to you need to do a podcast on the uh, devil in petticoats, most beautiful woman ever seen that murdered three husbands and the all male juries could not bring themselves to convict her. In fact, one juror tried to marry her. Oh, yeah, that's a story for another day, mate. That
2: is a story for another day. I just wrote it down.
1: And uh, I'm thinking maybe if my wife ever runs me off and divorces me, maybe I need to go to Edgefield and look for um, the next Mrs. DeWitt. Maybe there, there might be something in the water over there that make men kill one another. I don't know. And make uh, headlines in London. Maybe there's something in Edgefield we need to check out.
2: This is why we couldn't have Matt here today. We, <laughs> <laughs> we said uh, we are going to be talking about hoo-hahs.
1: Well, I'm trying to, trying to get... A- Keep it classy. But uh, we're, we're, we're distracting Tom now. Tom is, is here. Uh, he's trying to take the high road and tell us the story of murder. And we've uh, we've already drugged him down into the into the juicy, scandalous gossip column section. So let's let oh, Tom. I don't, I don't mind that at all.
2: <laughs> he doesn't mind.
1: <laughs> well, take us away from the trashy talk, Tom, and take us to the electric chair. Tell us what happened. Well, it was Christmas Day when she was transferred from the women's
3: holding facility to the, the death house. And um, January 15th, 1943, is the day she's to be electrocuted. And um, I believe, as the story goes, it was maybe perhaps during that trip that Strom and she had um, a little party on the back seat.
2: Well, and we've already discussed that they had some sort of relationship before. I I saw that she had had her head shaved earlier that day in preparation for the um electrocution.
3: That's correct. I and mean, that's what upset her. I read that, that was the only time she showed any emotion was when they cut her long dark hair. So and, she was uh,
2: vain. She was a little vain, but she was still hair. willing to uh have some relations in the back of the car.
1: That's right. Go out with a bang. Yep. <laughs> Okay, Tom, you're going to be in timeout now. We <laughs> we put Matt in timeout last week for, uh, yeah. and uh, so we're going to have to put our guest speaker in timeout. It looks like <laughs> the current hit her and the hood
3: flew off her head, and her eyes were bulging, and um, steam was coming off her scalp. I know that's not very fun to think about, but she was removed to the cooling table as they call it, and then they brought Logan. And they asked him as they strapped him into the chair if he was all right with Jesus. And he said he was. And then he was uh, electrocuted. As they're rolling his body out, they're bringing in um, Clarence Bagwell, the hitman. They begin to strap him in. And they ask him, do you have anything to say? No. They continue strapping in. he says, yes, that policeman and whiskey got me in this mess. And then I read in T. Dorn's book, that they put the current to him. And it took four minutes and 20-something seconds for him to be pronounced dead from electrocution. Four minutes and 20-something seconds. That is a long time for electricity to be running through your body.
2: Was it the same electric chair that they had the whole time? Does anyone know? I, th- I
3: think it might have been. I-, I visited CCI when they were getting ready to uh, demolish it. And... Um, I saw it and everything. It, it was a spooky looking thing, man. And the cooling table was just a spooky a metal slab. I had no idea under. they
2: had a cooling table. That is, yes. I guess <laughs> I guess that makes sense. You would be really hot after being electrocuted.
3: That's right. That's right. So soon, George and Bagwell. That brings us to eight people. All over a twenty dollar difference, ostensibly, over this mule that kicked the heifer. Broke his leg and had to be put down. But really, there was a lot of stress and feuding preceding all this, the school teacher business and all that. So, the, the mule kick was actually the spark that ignited a murder. And then, in quick succession, we had other people killed. As far as the, uh, the ninth guy goes, Joe Frank Logue, he ate his last meal and was prepped for the electric chair on January 23rd. Short before midnight, Governor Olin Johnson came to see him and commuted his sentence
1: to life. So Tom, just you know, to recap, Joe Frank Loeb was the uh, the nephew, I believe, of Sue Logue. And he was kind of reluctant from the start to get involved in this. If I remember correctly, they kind of she kind of talked him into it. So right. he is facing the death penalty, but he really didn't want to participate in all this. He was kind of forced. So What happens to him now? Well, he was the last one to go to the electric chair. And
3: on uh, January 23rd, 1944, he ate his last meal and was prepped for the electric chair. And just before midnight, Governor Olin Johnson visited him. And as a result of that visit, commuted his sentence to life. And he would would go on to become the uh, handler of the bloodhounds for SLED. Uh, pretty much.
2: He looked death in the face and and didn't have to go. Can you imagine eating that last meal, thinking you're about to go to the electric chair?
3: I don't even think I'd want a meal if that was the case. You know, no, I, I can't imagine that.
2: Or you could be but, Sue. Uh, you could you could get in the back of a car.
3: Let me jump in here a minute and add something I think is interesting. A few summers ago on July 4th, I decided to go find her grave in Edgeville at the Eastview Cemetery. And I pulled into, there was a couple of driveways. I pulled in this driveway and parked. It was a vast cemetery sprawling everywhere for acres. And I said, God, I'll never find her. I stepped out of the car and looked to my left. There was her grave right where I would parked. Oh, wow. Like she drew me to her. There it was, Zulu, the tombstone. So that's the story. Uh, every time I pass that store now on Highway 378, I just can't get over what went down there, you know, and uh, all of it comes back to me. And, um, you know, it was a tragedy, it was uh, hot blooded passions, all kinds of threads running through this story. A man that would almost be president someday, Strom Thurmond was in the line of succession. It's an incredible story. And by the way, the price of the gas was 60 cents a gallon. So I think the last time it dispensed gas was maybe around 1974, about the time I first passed this store, where a mule's kick set a series of tragedies in motion.
1: Now, if I'm not mistaken, Tom, ultimately there is one uh, thread of this story that has a positive ending. Joe Frank Lowe, he he, he was the nephew of, of Sue and he did uh, help implement the hit man and all that but from what i've read he was kind of an unwilling participant they kind of forced him to do it uh, but his story doesn't necessarily have a tragic ending does it what can you tell us about joe frank well he became the the handler of the blood, uh, blood house for sled many many years and as i
3: understand it he was uh eventually paroled so to speak uh or i don't know what the correct word would be but the community of law enforcement officers felt that he uh, he deserved to be free of all that trial and tribulation he had been involved with because I guess he was reluctant to get involved with it in the first place and I would think too he had to be very young at that time had to be quite young
2: Tom we want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your incredible story. Uh, now, before we let you go, is there anything you would want to share with our readers, uh, where we can find your book and your other work?
3: Well, you can find my books at USC Press, the History Press of Charleston, Arcadia, and, of course, Amazon. And my website is TomPoland.net. You can go on there and get a lot of good free reading. Have a good time and check it out.
2: Well, we will post your story to our website, and we uh, also, uh, there are a few uh, pictures that we'll post. So. Again, thank you for joining us. All
3: right. Thank you. And uh, let me know how things go.
1: That was the awesome storyteller, author, writer, Tom Poland. We're so lucky to to have him and hear from him and, and hear that just amazing story. So thank you, Tom. It was a, an honor and a pleasure. If you haven't read his books, if you haven't uh, read his articles, I highly recommend go to TomPoland.net and check him out. He is um you know he is. Uh, when I say he's one of the great modern South Carolina writers, I, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. And uh, Seton, I think we have some uh, reviews, and uh, we want to thank our sponsors, uh, Doctor Kenny Kinsey and Associates, Palmetto Pride Distillery, to make that uh, wonderful Palmetto Pride moonshine, and. Rotten Little Bastard Distillery right here in the 14th Circuit in Beaufort, South Carolina. I've been uh, supporting uh, those guys and uh, helping them uh, make ends meet here lately, and I uh, really enjoyed their products. So, Seton, what have you got for us?
2: Well, we had a good review on oh, actually, a great review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, It says, the same great team that brilliantly covered the Murdoch saga really enjoyed the latest episode's look at feuds throughout history. I listen to this podcast on my way to work, and it makes me look forward to my long commute. Truly enjoy the dialogue and content. Thanks for keeping the episodes coming. Michael R. from Irvin, California. I thought we were just all South Carolina, so I love that we have someone in California listening to us. So please rate, share, and review the episodes. You can find us on Facebook at The Wicked South.